I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when we come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion, which is a good listen. The first L is listening, and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning, but listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell. need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham. She was speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old, about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and especially thanks to our studio audience. Give yourselves a hand for coming out and being with us. Our mission here at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories. Stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we do encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshop series and other assistance we give to tellers, this is not in any way a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that's why we're here.
So tonight we're opening our 2018 season with an open theme night. Generally, each of our shows has a theme, mostly to get people's minds turning. You know, do I have a story on vacations or overcoming or what have you? But tonight we went with no theme. We're going to instead have a variety of topics addressed tonight, but maybe a theme will occur to you. Maybe by the end we'll all be able to share our themes with each other. We'll see. So we have six tellers coming to you tonight. Arnie Alpert, Emily Spaulding, Gail Lichardello, Joanne Piazzi, Nicholas Conley, and Annette Slattery. They each have a 10-minute limit for their telling, and each will be introduced to you further by our MC, Pat Spaulding. Following the storytelling, there will be an interview as well. Um, tonight, it will be of Joanne Piazzi. But first for the stories, let's welcome up Pat to introduce our first teller to you. Come on up, Thanks, Amy. We have a grand crowd here tonight. Welcome, everybody. This is going to be fun. First up, we have Arnie Elpert. He's from Canterbury, New Hampshire, is the co-director of the American Friends Service Committee's New Hampshire program, where he has served since 1981. Arnie helps New Hampshire groups organize effective campaigns for social justice and peace. He provides nonviolent action training, lobbies on matters of public policy, publishes articles in local papers, and co-hosts the State House Watch, a radio show on WNHNLP in Concord. Arnie, now a member of the New Hampshire Nuclear Weapons Working Group, so I guess we need one, will tell us a story from the early 80s when grassroots New Hampshire activists helped stop an ideologically crazed administration from escalating the nuclear arms race. <laughs> His story is appropriately titled, How New Hampshire Reversed the Nuclear Arms Race. Come on up, Arnie. Let's hear it. Okay, thanks, Pat. All right, good. So, um, are there people here who remember what a mimeograph machine is? <laughs> anyway, so those of you who do probably remember also that this is not the first time that we've had a president who thought that we could fight and win a nuclear war. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected. He came to office having been a member of a group called the Committee on the Present Danger, a group of extreme cold warriors, and he brought them all into his administration and the key offices in the State Department, in the Pentagon, in the National Security Administration, etc. They authored a document they called National Security Directive Number 13, which called for the United States to strengthen the overall war-fighting capability of our nuclear forces, including the ability to prevail, even including in response to a massive surprise attack. One of the ones who kind of summed it up the best, in my opinion, looking back on it, was a, a general named T.K. Jones, who worked in the Pentagon, and he was in charge of civil defense planning. And in an interview, he once said, he said, well, everybody's going to make it as long as there are enough shovels to go around. Yeah. He said, all you have to do is dig a hole, put a door on top of it, and then pile two or three feet of dirt on top. It's the dirt that does it. <laughs> now, we may laugh at this, but I was living in Portsmouth at that time, and sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of a plane from Pease Air Force Base taking off. And those planes might have been loaded with nuclear weapons, and we did not know where they were going or what they were going to do. This was a time 
to be terrified, legitimately so. But we had on our side the two Randys. So first there was Randy Forsberg. She was a graduate student in political science and arms control down in Cambridge. And she came up with a startlingly simple idea that was called the call to halt the nuclear arms race. It was a proposal that the United States and the Soviet Union should both agree at the same time to stop all further testing, deployment, and production of nuclear weapons and the missiles designed to deliver them. And this statement was starting to circulate at the time that Ronald Reagan was running for office. The other Randy was Randy Keeler. He was a, a Vietnam-era draft resistor. You might have even heard his name recently in connection with Daniel Ellsberg because Ellsberg credits Randy Keeler as having inspired him to release the Pentagon Papers. Randy, by this time, was living in a little town in western Massachusetts. He took Randy Forsberg's idea of the nuclear freeze and organized a campaign to put it on a referendum vote in several different towns in western Massachusetts. And on the same election where people in these little towns in western Massachusetts voted to make Ronald Reagan their next president, they also said they were in favor of a mutual freeze on nuclear weapons. Once Reagan then came in and these, the arms race started to accelerate with all this horrible rhetoric and policies to match new missile productions, etc., the freeze idea started to catch on. It jumped first from western Massachusetts north up to Vermont where uh, David McCauley from the American Friends Service Committee organized a campaign to take that same freeze resolution and put it on town meeting agendas in March of 1981. Now, a lot of people, if they paid attention at all, they just thought this is kind of silly. Like, why does anybody care what a little town in Vermont thinks about nuclear weapons? But the idea did catch on, and it did spread across the river to New Hampshire, where town meetings in Hanover, Plainfield, and Hanover, New Hampshire, a little bit later that year, also endorsed the nuclear freeze. I come into the picture a couple months later in August of 1981, where I get hired by the American Friends Service Committee to direct the New Hampshire program. And my very first project was to try to figure out if we could find people in New Hampshire who wanted to put this freeze proposal on their town meeting agenda. So what I did was I had a newsletter. Again, that was what the, where the mimeograph came in. <laughs> And at the bottom of page one, there was a little article about this. There was a little coupon that people could fill in with a pen or pencil and clip it off with it. That was back in the days when, like, cutting and pasting was something you did with scissors. Um, and, but people would, like, fill in these little coupons and say, I want to introduce the freeze resolution in Barrington or in Kingston or in other places. And then I would send them an organizing packet and then help these people get together. So remember, during this period of time, we had no listservs. We had no Facebook pages. We had no smartphones. We didn't text message each other. We had a a phone, my sister calls the phone phone, um, <laughs> as opposed to the cell phone. We had the US mail, we had the mimeograph machine. And that was how we communicated with each other and how we organized. And I went running all over the state, meeting with different organizers. We had a film called War Without Winners, produced by the Center for Defense Information, a group of retired generals and admirals that talked about the dangers. This is, again, where films were on these reel-to-reel -reel projectors. Um, remember anyway, so some of us remember these things. Um, but we used the technology of the time to organize all over the state. Key activists included people like Macy Morse, uh, the, old, the older generation. Macy at that time was living in Nashua, Lois Booth in Canterbury, Barbara Wyman up in North Sandwich. We had local activists around here, people like Carolina Bodner in Barrington and Randy Keezer in Kingston. Uh, Barbara Tesseris organized a Portsmouth chapter of Helen Caldicott's group called WAND here in Portsmouth. And all this stuff was starting to take off. We were networking with activists in Vermont and Maine that were doing the same thing. We were educating our communities. We were building leadership. We were starting these committees. And all this stuff was going on. Now, we were not without opposition. 
Um, we did, of course, have the editors of the Manchester Union Leader, um, who were not going to let us just get away with talking about stopping the arms race. Uh, eventually, I was very proud to be named and have a, a terrible photo of me in an editorial called Useful Arnie, in which I was uh, labeled a useful idiot of the communist conspiracy out to weaken American resolve so that the commies could take over. I knew that I had made it when I finally got that. We had little, we had little peace groups that were said that they were in favor of peace through strength, which at least meant that we had some people to debate with about the ideas, and that was scattered around. To a large extent, the media, the punditocracy, the foreign policy experts, they pretty much ignored it or tried to write this off, the freeze idea, as overly simplistic. It was simple, it was straightforward. They were trying to say, we don't have to pay attention to this. But in the first week of March in 1982, something like 180 towns in Vermont adopted nuclear freeze resolutions. And then that next week, Senators Kennedy and Hatfield, one Democrat, one Republican, introduced a freeze resolution into the United States Senate. And all of a sudden, the picture was different. All of a sudden, we went from the political margins to the center of discussion, not only at the national and international level, and the media is now calling up not only to get the story about the freeze, but they're calling me up and saying things like, you know, can you recommend if I want to go to the town meeting in Andover, New Hampshire, can you recommend a good restaurant I can go to on the way? <laughs> and things like that. So this was a very different picture. We had a TV crew from Japan came to our town meeting in Canterbury that year. And this got big. Um, the Boston Globe reported on the front page by the end of the week, roughly one quarter of the 221 towns in New Hampshire made the nuclear arms race their business last week at their annual town meetings. Despite the state's reputation as a stronghold of conservatism, an overwhelming number of the towns said they favored a joint United States-Soviet Union freeze on the development and deployment of nu nuclear weapons. Two months later, 14 buses from New Hampshire went down to New York City where we joined a rally that had a million people in Central Park calling for the nuclear arms race to be stopped and reversed. Plans to deploy nuclear weapons in Western Europe touched off a massive movement there that uh, threatened to rock the system. And by the end of 1982, the nuclear freeze idea, according to public opinion polls, had support for more than 70% of the American public. By 1983, the United States Congress passed a nuclear freeze resolution, and even New Hampshire Congressman Judd Gregg voted for it. Historian Lawrence Whitner writes that by October 1983, with anti-nuclear protests convulsing Western Europe, Reagan was ready to sound a full-scale retreat. In January 1984, in a major policy address, he proposed an end to the Soviet-American military confrontation and his readiness for nuclear abolition. Reagan came close to agreeing with Mikhail Gorbachev to eliminate all nuclear weapons at the summit in Reykjavik in 1985. We had been pulled back from the brink. Well, now we're back at the brink. We again have a president who threatens fire and fury, who believes that we can fight and win a nuclear war, who said, why have nuclear weapons if we can't use them? Who boasts about his big button and who has a new nuclear weapons policy like Reagan's that talks about having usable smaller nuclear weapons that we could actually put to work on the battlefield. So I leave you saying it is time to write and tell a new story of a new movement. And if you want to be part of it, let me know. Thanks. <laughs>
Back in the early 80s, I was dealing with this tension by traveling on a sailboat and thinking, maybe I can escape to Australia. But that didn't happen. Uh, now we're just duking it out with you. Okay, we're here. We're going to go now from the 80s to another time in the um, 40s and 50s when Emily Spaulding comes up. Now, when Emily starts talking, you'll know by her accent that she didn't grow up around here. <laughs> but she did write and publish her first book right here, between watching fishing trawlers, tugboats, and cargo ships maneuvering the tile, tides of the Piscataqua River, Emily wrote Red Clay Girl, a memoir describing her middle child's journey from Georgia to New York City and finally to Newcastle, New Hampshire, where she lives now with her husband Dick. In honor of Black History Month, Emily will recall a story about growing up in Griffin, Georgia during the racial unrest of the 1940s and 50s. She will share with us tonight a young girl's perspective on what happened one Saturday night in Griffin. Come on up, Emily. Well, I was going to skip up here, but I guess with the platform, that'll be a little hard to do. So imagine me skipping. I'm eight years old. And I'm living in Griffin, and I was really the happiest person in the world until the racial unrest took over. The black people, who were called colored people, and that was not a negative term, they lived on the other side of town, over the railroad tracks. And they didn't have schools like we did, and they got our leftover school books when they got too shabby for our schools. And they couldn't ride on the front of the bus. They had to go to the back always sit in the back. And not only that, when they went into town, the water fountains had these big signs on them that said in black, angry letters, white only. They had to go to the back to the where the, the other colored, it said colored only. Well, there, there's a good thing. On Saturday, for some reason, there was this unwritten rule that everybody could go into the main town and our family, this was a big highlight for us kids because we didn't have computers or cell phones or, or anything like that, or TVs. So going into town was really a big thing. I, we would get into our Buick at 5 o'clock. Now, the reason we went at 5 o'clock was because we would always say, oh, look, would you buy me that? And our parents would say, well, I'd love to, but the store's just closed at 5. <laughs> Well, we had a routine. The first place that we would go was to the train station. And my little brother loved trains. And he would go there and he would pull his hand like this, which is a standard thing all over the country. I didn't know that then. And the engineer would blow the whistle, woo, woo. And then he would wave to Alan. That made him feel really special, especially since he had two bossy sisters older. Well, the next thing that we would do, it was my sister's turn, and she was almost a teenager, and she liked to know what was in all the store windows, what was the latest thing. This particular Saturday night, it was red slingback, little heels. Now, some of you in the audience may not know what 
uh, slingbacks are, that is a shoe that has no back on it except a little, little strap, and they are cool. <laughs> Finally, it was my turn, and I wanted to go, always, I chose to go to the drugstore, which stayed open a little later, and have an ice cream soda. And this was a big, tall glass, and it had ice cream. Somebody's shaking her head like I had those, too. <laughs> and it had ice cream in it, and you had a big, tall, tall spoon, and the counter was marble. And no matter how hot the day was, it was cool. And you kind of put your body on that to cool off a little bit. Well, the bad news after that was it was time to go home. And so our parents would start out walking kind of fast, and we kids would walk really slow. And when they weren't looking, we'd walk backwards a little bit. <laughs> and then when they would turn around, we would swing arms and pretend that we were walking really fast. And the first thing that we saw that was unusual was a green front building that had glass. And there were men throwing dice against the front of it, and money was changing hands. And I turned to my dad, who, who was my go-to person, and I said, you know, I don't understand. We're all in the same town, and I can't understand a word that they are saying. How could that be? And he said, they're Gucci, Gucci, I'm sorry, Gucci. And he said, they are speaking a language, an old African language. Oh, I thought, that's like when people come into town and they have a Detroit license tag on their car, and they stop me because I'm in the front yard, and they say, could you tell me, could you tell me how to get to the Montgomery Highway? And I say, well, sure, you just go straight up the hill, and at the first light, turn left. And the driver always turns to his passenger, and he says, could you understand anything that she said? <laughs> and the passenger always said, no, I couldn't. Could you? And then they roll up the window and go on. Well, anyway, so finally we got to our car was parked behind the Piggly Wiggly grocery store, and there was an empty lot right next to it. And as we got closer to the Piggly Wiggly, we heard all of these noises, and it sounded like angry people. And we turned the corner, and there were all these men running back and forth, and it reminded me of hornets and wasps when they're swarming. And some of them had a torch. It was a dark night. And others had sticks. And I listened, and we listened, and what they were saying was, stream up, stream up. And Daddy said, get in the car, all of you, and lock the door and don't open it. And my mother said, get down on the floor. She didn't want us to see anything. So we got down on the floor, and it had red clay, and it had pine needles that were all sticky. And I got up, but not because of that, because I have always been curious. I think that's why I'm a writer, because I'm always curious. And I looked over, and my daddy was standing at the edge of the yard of the crowd of angry men. And he was talking to somebody, and they were waving their hands. And then finally they agreed on something, and they nodded, and daddy came back to the car. And I said, Daddy, are they going to hurt somebody? And he said, No, the sheriff's been called, and he's going to make their bed. Those bad men go home to their families where they belong. And I wiped my eyes on my sleeve since I didn't have a hanky. And my mother said, Al, be careful what you say. They might repeat that at school tomorrow and get in trouble. Well, we did talk about it on Monday at school, a few of us that knew about it. And 
what we said was, well, what if we did something that those people didn't like? And then they came after us, and that's what we were worried about. I started to have nightmares. It was always a man with a torch was following me and hiding in the bushes. And I decided that as soon as I was old enough, I was going to leave and go up north. And when I was 17, I did go to Florida down south, but then I headed north. And when I was sightseeing in New York City, the best sight that I saw was my husband Dick, to be my husband Dick. Mm -hmm. And we had three girls in Brooklyn. Can you imagine having girls in Brooklyn? Anyway, <laughs> so when they got to be school age, it, we thought, you know, I don't want them to grow up with prejudice like I did. So we were looking for a place that had different ethnic groups and different backgrounds and country, uh, countries and also different economic groups. And we looked for six or nine months and we found Terrytown, New York. And when they went away to college and grew up, they called up each one separately and said, you know what the best thing you did for us? And I said, was it the 3,825 meals that I cooked every year? <laughs> and they said, no. They said, you know, when we meet people who are different from us, we feel right at home because we went to school with somebody just like they were, and we get along right away. Well, it turns out that when we retired, Dick and I moved here to Newcastle on the seacoast. And everybody that I talked to said, I don't know anything about what it was like growing up down there and all that unrest. And so I started writing stories about that. And the stories I somehow try to always weave in, encouraging people to talk to people who don't agree with them, who have different opinions, and see if you can walk down a path of respect together so that there won't be people in Saturday night like that one that I experienced in Griffith. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. <coughs> We're now going to go away from Georgia, and we're going to find our way, I think, after a while to the Tetons. But who, the person who's going to help us do that is Gail Lisciardello. She lives in Elliott, Maine, but she grew up in Massachusetts, and after graduating from BU with a degree in occupational therapy, Gail traveled around a bit. For most of her adult life, she has been employed as an OT in various settings, from acute care burn units to rehab clinics and management. She taught occupational therapy at UNH, and most recently has worked in skilled nursing facilities. Periodically, she needed to take a break from her role in healthcare to do something differently challenging, such as two summers spent as a park ranger in Arcadia National Park, Maine, and Grand Teton National Park, Wyoming. Gail loves to travel and loves new adventures. Tonight, she'll describe the adventure of escaping her exhaustive role as a caregiver, only to rediscover the heart and personal value of that role. Let's hear more in the best address I ever had. Come on up, Gail. The best address I ever had 
was Gayla Chadello, General Delivery, Moose, Wyoming. I got that address when I decided to take a break from my role as an occupational therapist and a caregiver, and I became a park ranger in Grand Teton National Park, complete with the hat. Oh, I loved the hat, the uniform, the badge, the whole nine yards. Um, so I had a fabulous summer as a park ranger, but the reality was I needed to go back to work as an occupational therapist. But the next summer, I had such a great time in the beautiful Tetons that I decided I would go back and visit my park ranger friends who I had met the previous summer. While they were working, I decided to go on a hike. Um, so I went on this trail that I've hiked on many times before. I was hiking alone when um, all of a sudden I heard some screams. And at first I thought, oh, these are happy screams because um, it's such a beautiful place and people are excited to be in the park. Uh, but then I realized these were really blood-curdling screams for help. Um, at one point I heard compound fracture. So as I'm listening, another hiker comes along and we decide since I have a health care background, I will run towards the screams and he will run down the mountain to get the rangers for help. So I have to bushwhack down off the trail, down a ravine, um, and up the other side of a hill. And there I come, I come across um, a frantic woman, still screaming, um, telling me that um, the ground just gave way and her boyfriend slid down. He's screaming at me, don't touch my leg, don't touch my leg, I still have feeling in my leg. And I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? But I tell him, okay, I won't touch your leg, um, but let me just check out the rest of you. I can see that he's alert and oriented. I take his pulse, um, and I say, let me start, you know, wiping the blood off of you, off your face. Um, and as I'm doing that, two other hikers come along, and they just happen to be German physicians on vacation in the Tetons. <laughs> like, thank God. Um, so they immediately look at the bones sticking out of his leg and decide, you know, they put all four of their hands on his leg to stop the bleeding and to keep his bones in place. I'm feeling his pulse, talking to him, trying to calm him down. His name is Steve. He's a cab driver from Boston. And I say, oh, Boston. I know Boston. I went to BU. And he says to me, oh, so you're one of those BU girls, huh? <laughs> I didn't quite know what he meant by that, but at least he wasn't screaming. He was calming down, so things were good. Um, then two very experienced backcountry hikers come along, and they look at the scene, and they say, you have to get him off of the ground and something underneath him. Otherwise, he's going to become hypothermic. So um, we need to lift him up about a foot or so, and we all know that's going to hurt. Um, so I give him my hand and say, Steve, on the count of three, we're going to lift you up, and I want you to squeeze my hand as hard as you can. So one, two, three, we lift him, he screams, we get the blanket underneath, we put him down and cover him up again. And he's relatively calm, as calm as you can be with bones sticking out of your legs. Um, we're there for about an hour and a half um, before two park rangers, who are EMTs, arrive on the scene. And just before they get there, I'm whispering to the German physicians that his pulse is getting a lot weaker. Not a good sign. So the rangers arrive, and the first thing they say as they're putting on their latex gloves is, do you have any blood-borne diseases? Now this is 1992, the, the peak of the AIDS epidemic. 
I'm covered in blood. I don't want to know if he's got AIDS or not. <laughs> but he and the girlfriend both say, no, they're both healthy, everything's good. So then the ranger um, needs to take his blood pressure, he puts the cuff on, and he can't get it. You know, he tries a couple of times, and finally I say, hey, I can do that. So he gives me the cuff, I get the blood pressure the first time. And I'm thinking, I should be the one wearing the hat now, because I know what I'm doing here. Um, then the ranger um, wants to start an IV to put pain meds and IV fluids in, and he's poking away, and he cannot get that IV started. And Steve says to me, Gail, you do it. <laughs> no, no way. I mean, I know what my skills are. I can do vitals. I can calm people down. I can hold their hands. I can move them safely. But I don't do IVs. So I said to Steve, trust me, you do not want me putting an IV in you. Um, so while this is happening, the rangers realize that there's no way we can hike this guy out of, off the mountain, that they need to call a helicopter in. So they radio for a helicopter. Um, and uh, we wait for the helico helicopter to arrive. It was starting to drizzle. Meanwhile, I've been holding his hand for about at least two hours now. It's starting to drizzle. I'm getting cold. I needed to put my jacket on. And um, so I said to Steve, I got to let go of your hand because I need to put my jacket on. He said, no, no, don't let go of my hand. And one of the rangers said, oh, I'll hold your hand. So he grabs his hand, and then Steve yells, you're no Gail. I want Gail's hand back. <laughs> Um, so, eventually, about 3.30 or 4, now I started hiking at 11, but at 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, we hear the helicopter overhead. Um, it had to drop this big basket that we would eventually put Steve in about 20 feet down the mountain because that's where the clearing was from the trees. So, eventually, we get um, Steve in the basket. The helicopter lifts him up, takes him away to the hospital in Jackson Hole. It's about a five-minute helicopter ride. His girlfriend immediately breaks down and starts crying. So I go over and comfort her, put my arm around her until she did a good job. Her screams got the help and that Steve was going to be fine. Meanwhile, the two German physicians continue on their vacation and go off hiking. Um, and then the helicopter comes back, and a rope comes down, and one of the rangers and Steve's girlfriend are lifted up into the helicopter. Then the rope comes down again, and the other ranger is lifted up into the helicopter. And they take off, <laughs> leaving me all by myself. I'm tired, exhausted, cold, covered in somebody else's blood, and I have to walk an hour and a half down the mountain. Well, I guess that's just the price you pay for being competent. Uh, <laughs> the rangers felt that they could leave me there and I would be okay. As I walked down the mountain, I reflected on the, on the day. I was very glad that I was a caregiver, that I knew what to do, that I could keep Steve calm, and everything turned out okay. And I realized that even though I absolutely loved every minute of being a park ranger, my core being was a caregiver. But at least this time, I was a caregiver in the best address I ever had. <laughs> Gaila Trudello, General Delivery, Moose, Wyoming. That was Gail Leotardello, <laughs> General Delivery, Moose, Wyoming.
That is a good address. <laughs> Coming up next, we have Joanne Piazzi. She's a resident of Rochester, New Hampshire, and a veteran teacher, seamstress, and storyteller who's been telling stories since before she knew there even was such a thing. Once she understood what she was doing, Joanne stopped going to confession for it. <laughs> Good old Catholic background. I know what you're talking about. And started making money at it. Oh, just a little. Telling stories to children and adult audiences alike, sometimes simultaneously. Her stories are often amalgams. Is that how you pronounce that? Amalgams. I, I kept practicing that. It's like I don't use that word. Amalgams yep. of folk tales and uh, real life music, humor, and something sticky to hold them all together. I like that description. I can say it too. <laughs> she is the producer of the monthly storytelling series Right Between the Ears in Rochester, New Hampshire. And tonight, she'll tell us about the devastating and embarrassing effect that a pop ballad can have on a young woman's love life in her story. The way I've always heard it should be is not the way it should be. <laughs> Come on up, Joanne. In my work as a storyteller, I often come across articles that explain how stories affect our brains. Without exception, they always um, declare that listening to stories helps young people navigate life's challenges. I would like to point out one exception, me. <laughs> my father sits at night with no light on. His cigarette glows in the dark. Some of you recognize that. Mm -hmm. It is the story of a young woman witnessing her parents' disintegrating marriage, while at the same time trying to decide if she should embark on one of her own. Now, that story I, I first heard when I was 11, and it scared the crap out of me. I don't really know why, because that was like nothing I was witnessing in my own home. My parents had met when they were in high school and they were still very much in love with each other 15 years later. And I certainly wasn't in the position of having to decide whether to marry someone at that point. Now, I don't even think that at that time I had heard the name Gloria Steinem. But there was some little budding baby feminist in there that was just so bristling at the idea of a woman giving up her identity and becoming an accessory. Usually pop songs have a very short shelf life, but this one just stuck with me. It got into my bones and would not let go. So a few years later, I was at college and in love for the first time, and there's nothing like that. Well, my boyfriend was three years older than I, so he graduated, leaving me behind, and we were two hours apart. He had a broken down VW bus and a job in retail management, which meant that he had practically no weekend time available, and we really saw each other. I was really lonely. I was miserable. I couldn't have fun with my girlfriends who were out looking for guys, and I couldn't hang around with my girlfriends with their boyfriends. That just wasn't any fun at all. Now, our loose plan was that after I graduated, we would get married. But you say we'll soar like two birds through the clouds, but soon you'll cage me on your shelf. I'll never learn to be just me first by myself. I was going to be me first by myself. 
I was going to graduate and get my teaching degree and get a job and work for a year or two before I considered marrying anyone. So that put the whole thing four or five years out, which is a long time at that age. I was afraid that I wouldn't feel the same way then and would have wasted all of that fun college time that I could have had. So I broke it off. I was still lonely and miserable, but at least I wasn't afraid. So I graduated. I got my teaching degree. I went out and I got myself a job. I moved. I threw my beret in the air. I made new friends, and I met the boy next door. He was just out of the Navy, tall, handsome, single, employed, kind. And we dated for about two years and then got engaged. Now, he had this family that was very close. His brothers and sisters had kids, and they lived all in the same area with his parents, and every weekend they would get together, and every holiday they would get together. It was sort of an expectation. And they were French-Canadian. They drank like fish, and they loved to have fun and laugh. Their children hate them for the things they're not. They hate themselves for what they are, and yet they drink, they laugh, close the wounds, hide the scars. I knew that they, they were miserable. <laughs> and I would be too. And so I broke it off. <laughs> I hated breaking his heart. I felt terrible. But at least I wasn't afraid. <laughs> Over the course of the next 25 years, I had many boyfriends, some for a few weeks, some for a few years. My friends from college, they're all married now. They have their houses and their lawns. They have their silent noons, tearful nights, angry dawns. I had plenty of tearful nights and angry dawns, but at least I wasn't stuck with them forever. <laughs> so in 2012, Barack Obama was running for re-election. And my friends, who were chairs of the Democratic Party in Rochester, were having a house party, a fundraiser. And the guest of honor was to be Carol King. So I was sitting on my friend's living room floor, singing along with Carol, where he leads, I will follow anywhere that he tells me to. Now, I, inside I was bristling at the idea of blindly following this man anywhere. But I knew that wasn't about, this was about. So at the end, when the party was over, Carol was gracious enough to allow all of the guests to have their photo taken with her. So there I was, standing on the porch, shoulder to shoulder with Carol King, when I deliver what had to be the stupidest compliment in the history of compliments, I say, you know, you scared their shit out of me when I was 11. <laughs> she says, what? I said, the song. The way I always heard it should be. It scared the crap out of me. She said, sorry? And I said, you know, you know, the song, the way I always heard it should be. And she said, sorry, it wasn't my song. <laughs> and I realized... And that was Carly Simon. <laughs> and so the picture was taken, and Carol is looking radiant, and I'm looking like the biggest doofus who ever lived. Well, you know, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I didn't say that to Carly Simon, because really, what kind of compliment is that? I mean, that may have been Carly's story, or it may have been a fictional woman's story, but it wasn't her fault that I made it my story. And in thinking about that song, where the song ends is not really where the story ends. The song ends with the woman deciding to marry, despite you know, all evidence of happiness to the contrary. She decides that she's going to go ahead and do it. And I 
was the one who decided that it ended badly. <laughs> now, I don't know why. I'm not generally a pessimistic person. But I've decided that what I need to do is write a few more verses to that song in which everything turns out great and hope that that sinks in and sticks in my bones and in my heart so that that can be my story. And that's my story. Thank you. <laughs> Joanne Piazzi, she is not afraid. <laughs> Next up we have Nicholas Conley. He's a writer, world traveler, coffee vigilante from Dover, New Hampshire. As a former healthcare worker, he brings his real life medical experiences into the books he writes. His novel, Pale Highway, tackles the topic of Alzheimer's. Oops. Nicholas <laughs> also wrote the Alzheimer's theme radio play Something in the Nothing, nice title, which aired on WSCA Radio in 2016. His newest novel, Intraterrestrial, did I pronounce it right? I've been practicing, which uh, just came out last week, is available now on Amazon. It deals with traumatic brain injuries. In tonight's story, he retraces the first days that he worked as a nursing aide in the long-term care unit of a nursing home and how these experiences forever changed his perspective on life, death, and how to be there for other people. Let's listen to his story, day one. Come on up, Nicholas. Okay, so... When you ask anyone why they started working in healthcare, the standard answer, which is an honest answer, is because I wanted to help people. And that would be my answer if I were asked, and that's, it's true. But if I'm going to go really deep down, I think it actually goes down to a deep childhood desire to be a superhero and the idea of swooping in and rescuing people from disastrous circumstances. So anyway, I was 22 years old and I was trying to make a living as a writer and anyone who's in the room who's done that before knows the struggles of trying to make a living as a writer. <laughs> so um, I realized I needed a day job and so I wanted to do something meaningful, something that gave back and to fulfill this feeling of saving people and doing all this stuff. And so I thought, you know, I'm gonna become a licensed nurse's aide, work in a nursing home, do that sort of thing. This should be interesting, you know. So I took the classes learned about Alzheimer's, dementia, plaques, tangles, how to transfer someone, how to uh, do activities of daily living and all that sort of thing. And it, I learned a lot from it, obviously. But I don't think anything could have really prepared me for what ended up being what I call day one. And by day one, I mean my first day actually working in a nursing home. Because I guess I had this idea about what a nursing home is. And it's from TV and movies and so on. And you get this idea of a bunch of people playing cards at a table and laughing and these activities like bingo and so on. But I walked in and I'm in my scrubs with my badge on and I'm just nervous, obviously. But like, okay, this is going to be good. And I walk into a madhouse, which I just did not expect at all, where there's just a flurry of nurses running back and forth and back and forth. There's call bells going on constantly. Hygiene isn't 
isn't optimal, which it, like people aren't getting properly taken care of, and it's not the fault of the caregivers because they're doing everything they can, but it's just the system as it is. Because as I know now, most nursing homes are for-profit facilities, which means they're incentivized to have as many residents as possible with as few caregivers as possible, which means that you end up, picture it, 30 people being taken care of by two. And figure how does that work, because it doesn't really at all. And so I'm new, and I'm one of the two people with no experience other than clinicals. And so I walk in, and I'm just petrified and have no idea how to handle the situation that I'm walking into, walking into whatsoever. And at that point, as if I'm not already feeling scared enough, there's this tiny old woman who rolls up to me and grabs me and starts shaking my leg, saying, please, sir, please help me find my mother. And she's crying and sobbing and just begging for help, and I just don't know what to do. I had no idea how to handle that situation. I just, like, have no idea whatsoever, because I don't know how to, I can't help her find her mother, because she's in her 90s. I can't cure the dementia. I can't swoop in and save anybody here. I just don't know what to do. And so the call bells are going. I'm following the other worker around. Like, this one guy calls me into his room, asking me to kill him. There's, like, situation after situation, and I'm totally unequipped to handle it. It's just like a complete ego death like that. As in, you know, I just had no idea. Eat with training and everything, you know, you just can't be prepared. And so there's this one guy then who was constantly scratching, and he was very loud because he was pretty much deaf. And as he was scratching, he would just yell out random, seemingly random words. So he'd be like, he'd be like, how are you doing? And he's scratching. But it was, so people perceived him as having really bad dementia, basically. And so I didn't really interact with him because I didn't know how to, and I wasn't sure what to do. And, to, and he kept ringing his call bell to get in and out of the bed because he would go into bed and he would be scratching to the point where there was blood and want to get out of the bed, get into his wheelchair, and then want to be transferred back into the bed afterward over and over and over again. And so it took, like, I, that was going on. I wasn't sure how to talk to him or anything. And at some point he rang his bell at about 10.30 p.m., so a half hour before my shift ended. And uh, I go in and get ready to start transferring him, which I knew how to do by this point. And I didn't know what to say, really. But I walk in, and he's like, hey, I just want to talk. So I'm like, OK, sure. sure. Uh, so I sit down on the edge of the bed, and I'm like, what do you want to talk about? And he can't hear what I'm saying. And he's just like, I just want, I'm lonely. And so I just start uh, trying to talk and he's not able to hear it. And something occurred to me at that moment that at being, there was something in the look in his eyes where I realized this guy doesn't have dementia on the level that people perceive him as having. This is a hearing, this is hearing loss. Mm -hmm. And because he's in a nursing home, he's being treated as if he has severe dementia. When it has, and he has hit a little bit, but it hadn't progressed to that level yet. And something clicked in me at that point. So I grab a piece of paper and I write, are you able to read this in big capital letters? And he nodded with this big smile saying, yeah. <laughs> so I just, it's very loud, defiant, you know. So I, uh, so I start, I write, how are you feeling? And he's like, not very good. <laughs> so I, I sat there for the next half hour and communicated with him in this way. I would write the message down. It had to be pretty simple messages because it's big letters and I was running out of paper, obviously. Because <laughs> it had to be, his here it's, eyesight wasn't that great either. And so we would be going back and forth this way. And at a certain point, it's like 11.05. And uh, so I said, all right, well, I have to go. And he's like, 
he he's like, thank you for talking. And uh, so I write down, you know, it's, it's a real honor getting the chance to talk to you and help you with this. Thank you. And he says, thank you. And uh, so I go home that night. And the first thing I do is grab a six-pack on the way back. <laughs> like, grab a beer, sit down on the couch, and be like, what am I going to do? Oh, my god. Because it's like I had no idea what I was in for. I just wasn't sure. I didn't feel at all equipped. And I'm just sitting there feeling both depressed and morose and just totally, like, as he said, a total ego death, realizing all my ideas about what I could do come, came from this place of privilege of feeling like I could change things without the experience of knowing what people actually go through in these circumstances. But as I'm sitting there feeling that, suddenly there's this little voice in my head which tells me, you've got to focus on what you can do, not what you can't. And I thought about this situation I'd had with the guy that day. And I didn't save his life. I didn't do anything so dramatic or exciting or anything. But I talked to him. I was there for him. And they, that's really the most you can do sometimes, is just be there for somebody. And it made, it's a, a sort of a lesson that I took in both to the next day I walked in. Like I taught, when the woman asked for her mother, I said, oh, well, let's go and try to find her then and, you know, see if she's around. <laughs> and, you know, just that sort of thing, it sort of came, became clear to me. It wasn't about saving people it was, or trying to fix people or trying to correct people or anything like that. It was just about being there for them, focusing on what I can do and not what I can't. And that's a lesson I've taken into my interactions with everyone that I meet now. I don't try to fix people. I don't try to change people. I just try to help them if they're open to being helped. And that's my story. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Good story, good message. For our last teller, we have Annette Slattery. She grew up in Germany, came to the United States in 1998, and has moved eight times since then. She landed in Portsmouth in 2014 and has no further plans to move anywhere else, which, according to her, is pretty exciting. Currently working at UNH as an administrative assistant, Annette confided that some of her previous jobs have offered more exciting work. Take, for instance, the one she'll tell us about tonight. Let's hear more in her story, Rookie Mail Carrier. Come on up, Annette. There was only one nice person in the mailroom. His name was Helmut, and I was so glad that he had been assigned to train me when I started out as a temporary mail carrier in spring 91, 27 years ago. I had just dropped out of college, and I wanted to earn some money while figuring out my next move. But I was also looking forward to this job because I had always loved corresponding by mail. I, uh, delivering mail seemed like an important job, but also fun. I imagined a lot of happy customers. <laughs> While Helmut patiently explained to me what I needed to know, I watched the rest of the team with astonishment. In the morning when sorting the mail, they were throwing around packages from desk to desk, and they would also read postcards aloud. 
that they were making fun of. Spelling and grammar errors were discussed and also uh, informational value. What a boring card was often the, uh, was often the verdict. <laughs> On the other hand, they found customers' magazines quite entertaining and they would read them with their morning coffee. And for some, if they didn't get to finish what they wanted to read that day, delivery could wait till the next day. <laughs> I learned the ropes by joining Helmut on a few of his rounds. Temp workers did not get a proper uniform, but he found a really great postal worker cardigan for me to wear, which I have reconstructed for this occasion. <laughs> Front. Tag. And it has this really great um, logo of the Deutsche Post, the post horn, which hails back to early medieval times when there was no official mail. Back then, butchers would take mail letters with them when they were leaving to trade in uh, other towns. And to signal their departure for that, they would blow horns that they took from their slaughtered animals. And later, um, those horns were made of metal and they would signal official collection and um, collection and um, arrival times of official mail and also to signal duty-free passage of the official um, mail vehicles. So when it was time for me for my first solo round, I wore my new cardigan with pride. The first thing I learned was that all the people who had been greeting Helmut during the previous days so happily, they were not all great personal friends of his. It was a uniform and holding their mail. Now they were suddenly greeting me, wishing me a good day, and quite a few were waiting eagerly for my arrival. A lot of times it was retired people waiting for their magazine subscriptions and um, who tipped me with chocolate and a little bit of cash here and there. And then there were the lottery winners waiting for me. <laughs> Back then, relatively small winnings were paid out um, via postal money order, which was a really pun fun, uh, fun part of the job. You'd think that those payouts would be real gold mine tips, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Magazine subscribing grandmothers easily beat lottery winners in generosity. <laughs> I also learned that all those only mightily amusing cartoons picturing dogs chasing mail carriers around, those are rooted in deep truth. <laughs> One house stood out in particular. The dog was every day he was waiting for me behind the house and as soon as I opened the gate to take the mail to the house, he, kept, he charged around the house wildly barking. He had a 100% success rate because I threw the mail to the ground and ran, ran off. <laughs> and it was a big victory and it was a, another great day in Dogland. <laughs> One day I saw the homeowners getting out of their car, so I asked them if they would like to receive their mail in a more traditional manner. <laughs> and they could put up a mailbox at the fence so they could reach without entering their yard but they didn't seem interested. <laughs> Apparently some people prefer their mail with a bit of mud. What can you do? <laughs> One morning I had about 20 letters that didn't have enough, enough postage. Didn't have enough postage, all for the same street. 
There was no sender's address either, so that meant I had to ring the bell for every recipient and ask them if they would like the opportunity to pay the difference in exchange for the letter. That's a lot of additional work for me, but that, those were the rules, so I got on with it. I was already back out on the street when the first recipient of one of those letters came running after me. She showed me what was in it. It was a picture of a naked man smiling into the camera, being very comfortable with his body. <laughs> there was a message underneath that I don't remember, but I remember thinking, what kind of advertisement is that? <laughs> I don't think people are buying this. <laughs> I apologized, gave her the money back, and stopped bothering with those letters for that day. Back at the post office after my round, I asked my boss if I was really expected to deliver such material in person and for a fee. He took the letters and told me not to worry about it anymore. But the next day, before I caught on, there was another one of those, those letters. And before I caught on, I had rung the doorbell of the next lucky recipient. <laughs> the door opened, and I was looking at the, at the clothed version of the man in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> extremely odd situation. <laughs> this would get awkward. But I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to do and I definitely did not want to discuss this, what was in the letter. And um, so I thought I better just get on with this. I mean, so he politely asked me to come inside to wait while he look, was looking for cash and I did. And everything um, worked out normal. I got back out on the street and then I started thinking, that wasn't creepy at all. Um, and it's probably because he would not have sent this, this picture to himself. So somebody else must have sent those out, not himself. And who would have access to such a picture? Maybe a malicious, disgruntled ex? Um, cheap, too, on top of all those bad qualities for not paying the correct postage. I couldn't help but hope um, to, that he would have somebody to talk to about with all to talk to about all this craziness. It didn't, occur to it didn't occur to me to tell my boss about my latest encounter with um, naked men in picture. <laughs> so I don't know if there was a follow-up on the matter or anything. There were no letters. So for me, that strange episode was over. After a few months, my rounds were getting more difficult. I was assigned a new district where quite a few residents were paid uh, pensions and welfare checks um, via postal money order. So some mornings I left the post office with several thousand Deutschmark in cash. That seems crazy now, but um, I was really inexperienced, so I didn't really think about what a mark I was. On the day in question, I had had my, one of my wisdom teeth removed the day before, so I was feeling a little bit, a little bit off my game. And about halfway through my round, I noticed that about 700 Deutsche Mark were missing. That's about $350. So I must have either overpaid one of the families or somebody stole the money while I was counting out the cash on one of the stairs in, in one of the apartment buildings, which was my approved by nobody, low security method. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I should definitely have received training on how to do this more discreetly but I hadn't. I asked one of the families if I had paid them too much money, but they denied it. 
for some reason, I was sure that they had it. But I realized that there was no match for them and also really confused at that point. So I cut my losses and just got on with my round. And then back to my long-suffering boss with another strange story. <laughs> <laughs> After I told him about the missing money, I tried to convince him to come <coughs> with me to confront that family. Come on, I know they took it. If you come with, we can take them. <laughs> that just sounds completely insane now, so I'm glad he was smarter than that and we refused. <laughs> I couldn't tell if he believed me or not, but I understood that I was liable for the money regardless. But at that point, I had worked as a mail carrier for about five months. I had saved enough money for my next move and I didn't need this job anymore. So it seemed like a good time to quit. Or like my brother, like my brother put it, you better leave there before you end up in the hole with that job. <laughs> <laughs> the money I owed went unpaid. I hung up my awesome Deutsche Post cardigan with a little less pride than when I first put it on, and, but a lot wiser from experience. I also strongly advised my friends never to put anything important on postcards. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much to tonight's wonderful storytellers and to the studio audience for being a part of this. Let's thank everyone. Again. So, True Tales Live will be back here on Tuesday, February 27th. And our theme that night is Then Everything Changed. We're already full, uh, storyteller wise, but we invite you to consider. March, when we have the theme of overcoming, and that, lest I heard, still has slots open. Uh, please email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com if you're interested in participating in March or any other month this year. If you would like to tell a story here at True Tales Live but are unsure of yourself or want a little help with your piece, come to our monthly storytelling workshops. They are held here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, on the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9 p.m. They're free and open to all, and the next one is a week from today, February 6th. Watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime is video on demand. If you go to YouTube, and search for PPM TV True Tales Life. That's how you find us. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible John Lovering, Pat Spalding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us, Thank you so much for listening, and do stay tuned for um, Pat Spaulding interviewing Joanne Piazzi.
Drew Tales Live on BPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story?